Nina D, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So we had a moment of magic in the one and a half minutes we were chatting. Um, I said, I'm a Who fanatic, and then you showed us. Look at that, and that was not planned. Um, it is a, it's a great coincidence. Uh, just for our viewers who don't know you yet, uh, you do just amazing, amazing stuff uh, on the electric violin, and you're really a pioneer in the area. And I, I don't normally work off the notes too much, but your list is too damn long. So I, I printed it up, just, just to name a few. Uh, you played with the Killers in front of some guy named Barack. Yeah, maybe Surprise people have heard of him. Happened. It yeah, <laughs> that's just beyond cool. Then you've got Michael Bublé, Beyonce, Tony Braxton, Deep Purple, and you will be our third Deep Purple guest. Um, Cheap Trick, Wayne Newton, Johnny Mathis, Smokey Robinson, second guest with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Donna Summer, Mary J. Blige, Regis, which is just so cool, and Tony Braxton. And you um, have a project, which we'll have to hear about, uh, Bella Electric Strings. Yes, I have a few projects, actually. Well, we will cover all those. Uh, but one of the things I got your permission to do, um, and I have to pull it up on my phone now before we started, which I'm, I'm not kidding you. When I was on my YouTube little journey with you, I had physical goosebumps, like literal. So here we go. Absolutely fantastic. I don't even want to shut it off, but. Um, yes, there's a yeah. whole video up there on YouTube where I cover the violin and guitar parts from Baba O'Reilly and talk a little bit about how I got into that song. Yeah, it was really fascinating. Um, and I loved your appreciation for the song and, and truly enjoyed, like, when I watch your videos, you know, I, I love the way you set them up because the first part you're talking about the technical challenges that you, you face when you take on a project like that. And then you get into the musical challenges and then you give us the actual performance. And it, it's really cool to watch. I like people to see that it's, it is a process trying to translate a lot of these solos onto a violin, an instrument that most of these guitar solos obviously weren't written for. So it takes some time and I really put a lot of thought into it. And, and, and I'll tell you what, um, I, I as, as a new fan, um, really appreciate it. Um, I think a lot of folks who, who would just sort of watch you, um, first of all, I think they could, they could almost forget that it's a violin because you so, um, so well approximate the guitar sound. But one of the things I picked up on, and I, and I can't remember which performance it was, it might have been Hotel California, I forget which, but I, I loved the way that you didn't let us forget it's a violin, you know? That solo in particular actually works really well on violin because of all of the slides and everything like that. Yeah, and I wonder from an artistic point of view, how do you sort of engage in the process of technologically and musically replicating the lead that we all know in the back of our heads that have just been burned into our heads and then still, not, I'm not even going to say make it your own, but make it belong to the violin also. How do, you, how do you sort of walk that line? Well, there's a couple ways to do it. You can find a lot of violin covers of guitar solos on YouTube if you look for them, but most of them are sticking to the integrity of the violin. They sound like a violin playing right. 
solo. And I wanted to kind of try and replicate the original tones, the original sounds and the original style as much as possible with the, uh, you know, the intention of these new violins, especially these violins that have six and seven strings on them can kind of replace a guitar, a lead guitar in a band if possible, which, which is kind of what my production show is based around. It's based around these electric violins replacing guitars. And so my process goes from taking music that I love. So I already know the solos. They're already in my head because I've been listening right. to years. Classic rock is the kind of music I, I grew up on. And so right. and then the challenge comes to uh, a guitar is tuned in fourths and a violin is tuned in fifths. So some of the things that work easily in the fingers on a guitar don't work so easily on a violin. And you can't just move up a fret, a fret, a fret and have it. Right exact same fingering it doesn't work that way if you move to second position your fingerings are totally different than first position and third position and everything else so for instance when i covered the beatles uh the end which uh trades off between paul jo uh, george and john in the actual right. abbey road i had to figure out how to play some of these things to make them sound like the actual part because if i just played the notes Sure, I played the notes, but it didn't sound like the original solo. I actually had to tune three violins three different ways. And the third one, wow. our chords and tuned it like a guitar so that I could play kind of power chords the way that John did in that real gritty section. And I actually bent the string to emulate a guitar bend, which is pretty much impossible unless you're in a super low string that's really loose. You can't even bend the high strings on a violin. They're too, there's too much tension. Right, right. So I try as much as possible to keep it sounding original. And, and, you know, I love the fact, and I've watched some of your unboxing videos too, that, that you might need to get yourself a brand new product for a brand new project, right? This is absolutely true. So, um, we originally only had a five-string violin. A regular violin has four strings, and a five-string adds a low C string, so you have the range of a viola or a violin. But a guitar, the lowest string on a guitar is a low E. So for me to be able to hit those notes in the correct octave which out, without having to move the solo up an entire octave and play it in the wrong range on the violin, I need a string, which on a violin would be F. So that means I have to tune that string down a half step to hit that low note. So in the covers that I've done of Purple Haze and Whole Lot of Love, I've tuned that low six string down to an E so that I could hit the full range of the guitar. And then... Of course, it's changing all of your fingering when you're learning the solo, because instead of playing in fifths like you're used to, now you have this low string that's at a completely different fingering. And now I now own a seven string violin, so I don't even need to tune any strings down. I have I have strings down to a low B flat, so I can pretty much range bass, guitar, cello, viola and violin all on one instrument. It's that's beyond fascinating. Uh, how many how many electric violins do you own right now? <laughs> well, Let's see. Um, I produce a couple shows where we have a string quartet that is in the show. So I probably own three full quartets of instruments, Yamaha, wow. two Yamaha quartets, and then an LED quartet for when we do these light up shows with these acrylic kind of clear violins. And then me personally, I own, well, let's see, there's a couple of them here, but I, I probably own maybe five to seven electric violins that are for me personally, and then I own two acoustic violins. Wow, and then I see you've got, a, you got some bass guitars, and I'm guessing I see an acoustic guitar unless it's an acoustic bass behind you. That's an acoustic bass hanging up. I, I okay. 
decided at one point that I didn't really want to play the violin anymore after I got my master's degree in classical violin. It was so stressful. I was like, I want to play the least stressful instrument possible. So I took up bass guitar. Right. I joined a band in Las Vegas and I played six, seven nights a week in the Las Vegas lounges on, on bass guitar. So for a while, that's, that's what I did <laughs> until I was. Oh, that's good stuff. Until I had detoxed from the high stress <laughs> violin playing. That's yeah, because it's it, you really buy a lot of work for yourself with what you've chosen, right? Uh, the more versatile you can be, and the more instruments you can play, and yeah. the more styles you can play, the the more work you'll do. I think. Yeah, and, and that's why I think you know where we started uh, on on this show today is that your backstory is so critical uh, because I think. You know, as I watch the video, now I can truly appreciate in a way that I might not otherwise have what went into it. You know, like what was, there was one you um, chose a wooden electric violin for part of it, and then you were electric. That might have been Hotel California. I think on Baba O'Reilly, I played an acoustic violin that was mic'd up for the violin solo portion, and then I played the oh, electric okay. violin for the Pete Townsend guitar parts. Yeah. So here, here's here's a, a confession on my part. So I've been a Who fanatic since uh, Who Are You, which is either 78 or 79. I think it's 79, I think. And um, I don't think I was even aware of the fact that there was a violin in it. But, you know, well, I, Bob O'Reilly at the end when uh, the Who does it live, sometimes they have a violinist with them. And, and a lot of times Roger Daltrey plays harmonica on that end. Right. So because they're so used to seeing him do the harmonica part, you're right. Yet that it was originally a, a violinist doing it. Right. And you're right, because I'm the visual that I would always get, I've seen them probably 10, 12 times, not like a hundred or anything, but, but yeah, I'm used to seeing Roger on harmonica. And um, because you just said the word harmonica, I watched you with fellow Princeton resident, John Popper, do Devil Went Down to Georgia on stage as opposed to a studio recording, which looked like so much fun. It was a lot of fun. It was kind of a last minute thing. And, uh, you know, he's a virtuoso on the harmonica. Mm -hmm. he's yeah. The greatest. And so we got together about 10 minutes before the start of that show. He's like, all right, see if you could follow along here. Here's what we do. We do this, 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 and this in the form. And then we got out on stage and it was the fastest version of Devil Went Down to Georgia. I've oh, my God been asked to play in my life but it was a, it was a lot of fun to play with them yeah they did they went hog wild with the speed there i noticed that and i was watching you because he was kind of doing his own thing on a harmonica i don't i don't think he was trying to say all right this is what i'm going to do and you know and you were keeping up with him every step of the way obviously but i saw him just kind of doing what he wanted to do on the harmonica right He's got his whole thing that he does to that song, and usually he does it alone. And so for me to sit in, he kind of was like, all right, you take this part, I'll take this part, you take this one. And yeah. I had to remember it really fast and then get on stage and, and keep up with their tempo. But it was, it was a, a lot of fun, especially the devil solo in the middle of it. Oh, I know. It was, it was absolutely great. And then I, I was unclear, sort of the guitar intro for you, you know, when you're the, the, the guy who's, you know, fighting the devil. Um, but it worked, you know, he, he kind of did almost bar chords, like power chords to give you your intro before that solo. But then the band gave you a perfect backdrop once you did your solo. I thought it was great. Yeah, they're all incredible musicians and blues traveling. Yeah. I've seen them a few times and I got to sit in with them that one time. And, uh, you know, it was really a great experience to play with such wonderful musicians. Yeah, you know, I lived in Princeton for years. So we would see John Popper hanging around the Tiger's Tail 
I think, don't you have Jersey connections? Are you originally from Jersey or no? New York. So, oh, okay. East Coast, but not Jersey. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we used to see him, you know, I would just see him around town, you know, just in the local bar scene back in, I guess, the very early 90s. We'd see him and the guys from Spin Doctors, because I know those bands, you know, they were kind of friends with each other. Yeah, it came up around the same time. Yeah, it's good stuff. So let's go back a little bit in time. Um, so when did you first, you know, at what age did you first become a serious musician or at least take up anything? Well, I I asked my mother, you know, kind of when it started and she, they had a piano in the house and my mother was kind of a casual player. She'd play, you know, she took some lessons as a child. And so we had a piano and she said when I was as young as two or three years old, I'd kind of push her out of the way when she'd be playing the piano and pick out tunes and start start playing them. And she said, by the time I was six, I was asking for lessons myself. And that's when she decided to put me in lessons. So it started on classical piano lessons at age six. And wow. then, uh, in school, in fourth grade, we had to choose uh, an instrument, either a band or an orchestral instrument. And it's a kind of a funny story how I ended up playing the violin because uh, they sent us a sheet home with all the instruments. And they said, put your first, second and third choice instrument down and then you know, we'll kind of decide who's going to go to the orchestra and who's going to go to the band and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, at the time I was really into 1950s music. And so I wanted to play the saxophone because every 50 song had a sax solo in it. Right. And yeah. It was really popular. And Lisa Simpson played the saxophone. So between all of those things, I put first choice tenor sax, second choice alto sax, third choice Barry sax. And I sent it back to school and the the band director called me into his office and he said, okay. Um, he said, you know, we have a lot of people who want to play the saxophone right now and you're really, really small. He's like, I don't think you're going to be able to carry the saxophone to and from the bus stop every day and into school. He's like, how about you play the violin? It's, it's a lot lighter for you. And I was just like, okay. And that's really how I started playing the violin. It wasn't my choice. I didn't want to play it. I just did it just to be easy. <laughs> so. so it literally, so your whole career, is based upon the weight of an instrument to and from a bus stop. That's right. As perceived by some, you know, guy in your school X number of years ago. That's, that is a great story. Yeah. So if you were a superhero, that would be a great backstory <laughs> as, as the violin superhero yeah, you are. Based on someone else's choice for me and not, not my own. So. Yeah. And, and, it, and it worked out. It was, maybe it was divine providence, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's really cool. So here you are in fourth grade. Um, you start playing the violin and then do you, do you have memories as to how you felt about the instrument or is it kind of just a, a blur at that, at that point in your life? I remember practicing. I remember doing all of the, you know, technique stuff that you learn as a young violinist with the pencil to keep the bow straight and the, the positioners to hold the bow correctly and practicing the plucking first and then the bow over and over. And I remember really liking a lot of the classical repertoire that I had already known from Looney Tunes cartoons just, All right. So a lot of that stuff, learning how to play it, I had already heard in the cartoons, which I think these days they don't get a lot of that from the newer cartoons. I'm glad they were no. still when I was a kid. But yeah. I was excited to do that. And as far as I back as I can remember, as soon as I could play the instrument, I remember picking out the melodies to Beatles songs. And my dad was a casual guitar player. He's a, a police officer, but he strummed some chords and, you know, would teach himself a few songs here and there on guitar. And he'd strum the chords and I'd pick out the melodies to the Beatles songs and we'd play while my mom was cooking dinner at night. So I have some early memories of still wanting to play, you know, classic rock music. 
So it was, now, where was the classic rock in your life at that point? It all kind of comes down to when I was young, my father was really into 1950s music. He had a friend and, you know, the two couples would go on to sock hops and things like that. So my early exposure was like Jackie Wilson, Elvis, you know, uh, stuff before the Beatles, everything pre Beatles was what I was exposed to. And then my mom was a, a, a finance manager at a college in upstate New York. And okay. I was, I believe about 11 years old, a group called Beatlemania was coming to perform mm -hmm. at college. And because she worked there, she got free tickets. And so she asked if me and my best friend and my best friend's mom, we all wanted to go to the show. So when we went, you know, it was kind of like we as 11 year old kids, myself and my best friend experienced Beatlemania for the first time in, in the nineties, you know, right. And yeah. We listened to these songs and we're like, I feel like we know all these songs, even though we don't know all these songs, there's something super special about this music. And they did such a great job of emulating their personalities. At that point, I went home and I went into the basement and my parents still had a record player and I found my mom's old Abbey Road album. And that entire summer, my best friend and I listened to Abbey Road over and over and over again. And from there, we went to every other Beatles album. And from there, we moved on to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and The Doors and The Who and Chicago. And that it kind of all stemmed from going to see Beatlemania when we were wow. 11, that we discovered all this classic rock music, you know, 30 years after it was it was new or more wow. or after it was new. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, certainly introducing the Beatles, I think was 64. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Which is my first album I ever bought. So definitely more than it was more than 30 years later. Wow. And, and then what's really cool, I think is that because you saw Beatlemania, you were that 11 year old kid, just like in 1964, the, the teeny boppers, because you were getting that experience. You weren't just, getting, you know, a cover band who didn't look like the Beatles, where you would just appreciate the songs, you were getting all those little things that made the young kids scream and go crazy. Sure. And we went down the rabbit hole. We watched all the Beatle movies we watched. I think I've seen every interview John Lennon has ever given. Their personalities like completely captivated us decades after. I, I was never even alive at the same time as John Lennon, and he's my biggest hero. So wow really had a special thing in space time that I don't think will ever be duplicated again but we were we yeah. were kids and we were immersed in all of it like like it was 1964. That's really cool you know I remember um I saw the who at what was then called the Garden State Arts Center probably around 1993 or so and I already felt old at that point but I, I saw a lot of guys and I saw a lot of young girls like 16 17 at a Who concert, not with their parents. And I was really uh, gratified to see at least some younger kids, you know, who were way outside of, you know, sort of the typical demographic for the Who, who were appreciating that. Definitely. It's great to see. And I, I experienced the same thing at a Paul McCartney show here in Las Vegas, right before the pandemic. My son was three years old at the time. And right. he obviously knows a lot of this music because I listened to it. And so I took him to see Paul McCartney. It was a last minute decision and the tickets were really wow. 10 rows off the stage and on the floor. And, uh, you know, I took him and we have these videos of him singing. I think he opened with Junior's Farm, like a lesser known solo McCartney song. And there's my son yeah. to Junior's Farm at three years old. So I'm like, I've done my job, done my job. You have. Music. I, I thought for years as a parent, I had failed in that regard. I'll see if I could find the text while we're chatting. 
Um, and then I, I, I find out from my daughter, who I thought really was not a fan of, of the kind of music I like, not only loves the Beatles and the Stones, I'm looking for the text right here, um, look, the, but she likes the Stones a little more, which is my taste. But I really thought that my kids had just failed in that. And I, I'm going to show you a text I got from my son, if I could find it. I'll probably fail. I won't be able to get it. But he wrote me a, a text. He simply showed me, and this is great. It said, Baba O'Reilly on his, on his car. And he said, you'd be proud of me, Dad. So it was pretty cool stuff. But the fact that you're doing it this early on is even better. They resisted the hell out of me uh, with all my music. They wanted to hear whatever was new when they were younger. They, but I guess it sunk in. Yeah, mine are used to, uh, they've been used to the Beach Boys, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Queen from a, from a pretty young, I mean, my daughter is, is one, so she's already, you know, into anything with a beat, really. It doesn't matter. Oh, that's great. That's good stuff. Now, what do you think it is? You know, here we are, it's 2022, and there is something magical and captivating about, you know, what we all now call classic rock. And you made a comment before that at least I agree with, which is that on some level, it's not really getting replicated. Maybe it never will. But what is so special to you about that, that period of time of music, say like, you know, mid to late 60s up to maybe very late 70s, early 80s? I think that there are so many different factors about why it was special, some of them completely non-musical even. When you think of what was going on in the world in the 60s, mm -hmm. And the 70s, I mean, you have Vietnam, you have people dying, you have civil rights going on. There was a lot of turmoil. There was the, you know, in the early 60s, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the, the Cold War started, you know, so many things were happening at the same time. And when I think about similar things that are happening now in the world, is anyone turning that into art now, though? I mean, when you right. think, how many great protest songs came out of the Vietnam War, how many great right. white songs came out of that era. And now we have similar issues going on in the world, but none of the people who are famous right now seem to be really using it to channel it into this amazing timeless art that they did in the 60s and 70s. And so I think part of it comes down to that. There was such a strong emotion tied to the things that they were writing about. It was honest music. It was emotional. Right. And it was music that changed the world. And I think more than anything, more than even the great guitar solos and the great lyrics and the great way that the music was written and the catchy melodies and harmonies, I think that the way that it was honest music means more than anything. Yeah, that, that really does make sense. And I wonder too, if there is a little bit of innocence about it, you know, I mean, you know, there always was a music industry, you know, with our little air quotes around it. But, I, but I, you know, like, you know, I always talk about the fact that I think it was Ray Davies would take a razor blade to his speaker to get distortion, you know, to just sort of slice it up a little bit. He wasn't spending X number of dollars that we can all do today to get this effect to create that sound. And, it, you know, like they were using physical tape, nothing was digital. I wonder if that adds to it on any level. Sure. The innovation that they were all experiencing, like what did Jimi Hendrix have to work with? A, a wah-wah pedal and an amp. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, he didn't have the options that we have today, but these are the people who pioneered a lot of this stuff and a lot of what, I mean, a lot of what we have now 
wouldn't even exist without them experimenting. And again, I come back to the Beatles who had so many firsts in their music, you know, their backwards recordings for the first time. And I think right. to get you into my life may have been the first time that a horn section was used in a, in a pop song like that. And it was, I think one of the early inspirations for Chicago and one of the only mm. songs they ever, they ever did in their performance careers. So yeah, a lot of things were being innovated at that time and people had to get a lot more creative and, it seems like younger people were doing really meaningful things back then as well. I mean, like I'll reference Bob Dylan. I think the Free Will and Bob Dylan record came out in 1963. He was like, what, barely over 20 years old at that time. And he's writing songs that were on that album, like, you know, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall and Masters of War. This is a young 20-something. What Has anyone done anything comparable to that level of quality of art? I mean, now... I. I don't know. I'm sure someone has, and I just haven't heard of it, but that stuff was mainstream back then, I guess. What was mainstream then and what is mainstream now are, are different. Yeah. You know, that, that's a really good point. You know, I'll, I'll sit here, you know, as a guy, over, you know, I'm 57, right. And I'm, I'm listening to music where I, my whole life have worshiped on some level, what was accomplished by whatever musician we're chatting about. Right. And these are folks, you're right. Who did it in their early twenties. You know, so they, they really are great accomplishments. You know, how insightful the lyrics are, the creativity of what they did with their instruments. And, and they're doing it with, with so much less at their disposal. Like uh, you talked about Hendrix, you know, the, what he figured out with those Marshall heads and the big cabinets or his sun amps, where he would figure out how to create that feedback by sheer volume, you know, and putting his strings in front of a speaker so that the speaker would make the strings vibrate, and then the, the strings would make the speaker vibrate, and you get that amazing back and forth. I mean, it was really spectacular what he did. For sure. You know? I had had the chance to, to see him live. He's one of my, one of my guitar heroes. And yeah. I mean, yeah, the age of these people when they were doing these things, even uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the Get Back special uh, about the Beatles, but no. uh, you know, that whole thing, uh, George Harrison is barely even 25, 26 years old. The Beatles have had their entire career and he wasn't right. even close to 30 yet. It was just crazy how young they were to be doing so much. Yeah, it is. And I guess, you know, I mean, Paul is just barely 80 now, right? Maybe 79 or 80, I think. I think that he will be 80 in June, actually, this year. He's and, that's, and that's young because, you know, in, in 64, he was famous. Like... You know, like uh, that's crazy to think of, you it's know, nearly 60 years ago, he was famous. And slowly watching all of my heroes get old and retire and, you know, yeah. Yeah, David Bowie was a, was a rough one for me because it was so unexpected, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of them, I didn't have the chance to ever see live. I just wasn't around at the time, but I'm yeah. I've gotten to see Paul McCartney twice and I've gotten to perform with a couple bands that I love like Deep Purple and Cheap Trick. So that, that was really cool. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Uh, talk about Cheap Trick a bit. When did you tour with them or when did you perform with them? I played with them. They had a residency in Las Vegas and they did the music of Sgt. Pepper for this residency. Wow. And uh, Jeff Emmerich was here working on it and I got to meet him and uh, they had a backing orchestra. So I had gotten to perform with them a few times in the backing orchestra and I remember... Uh, you know, because Rick plays the checkerboard guitar and I had yeah. checkerboard Vans sneakers on. 
And, uh, you know, it wasn't with the dress code of what the orchestra was supposed to wear, but because I was a fan of Cheap Trick, I wore these shoes and whoever hired me for the gig actually yelled at me about, about having the shoes on. <laughs> dress code. But then Rick walked past us backstage and he goes, hey, nice shoes. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, that's great. It's okay. And so it was kind of a funny moment because a lot of these other musicians didn't know who Cheap Trick was or know any of their music before they came to play the gig. But that was the first time I played with them. The second time I had actually uh, created my own production show called Femmes of Rock. And before COVID, we were touring all the time. And on one of our tour dates, we were opening for Cheap Trick and Bad Company in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so we ran into Rick and Robin Zander at the hotel the night before, and they remembered me from the Vegas show, and we were talking, and they ended up asking us to sit in on Dream Police. So that night, wow. I had a really quick string quartet arrangement, like all night long, and we memorized it. And the next day, we got up on stage and we we played Dream Police with Cheap Trick um, in the show that we opened for them on. Oh, that is super cool! A song, by the way, I re listened to as recently as last night. Nice. Yeah. I, I, they're one of my favorite bands. They, they bring such sort of positive, fun, and irreverent energy. And they're this you know? offstage. They're such nice. They're, they're one of the nicest groups that, you know, we've ever worked with. You always worry that people that you enjoy their music are just going to leave a bad taste in your mouth when you meet them in real life. But Robin and Rick are super nice people. Are they as wonderfully, lovably nerdy as Rush? Well, I think... Well, obviously Rush takes it a little bit further with the yeah. music, but I'm yeah. a huge Rush fan. And, Same. Uh, yeah. you know, I actually like even learned the violin solo to losing it. My, uh, my better half Brody that you met when he was testing the mic, he's a yeah. singer and he, you know, did a tribute to Neil Peart when he passed away and I learned the violin part and it was really hard, but, uh, it's they're different kinds of nerdy, I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's something. And, and then uh, Deep Purple, uh, we I think we've had two guests who who have toured with Deep Purple. But what what was that like? Did you uh, were they in Vegas or did you do something different with them? Cheap Trick was man or, or Deep Purple. I'm sorry. I remember the year that this was, but they did a series of tour dates where they had uh, an orchestra backing them up, and so okay. when they came through town you know, the agent first thought of me because they're like, well, Nina's the classic rock person and she's a string player. So, so I put together the orchestra for them. And a lot of the performers that are in my Bella Strings show or my Femmes of Rock show were, were on the, the gig. And, um, you know, they already had their charts already done. So it was kind of a, it was a back gig for us where we, we read down the music with them. And I remember, uh, my chair was right behind, um, Ian Pace. The, the okay. And so I had forgotten to bring earplugs for, for the game. Oh, no. Probably the loudest experience of my life. I don't think I could hear for like three days after the performance because wow. I forgot my, my earplugs. And then, of course, I read afterwards that I think for a while, Deep Purple, they were in the Guinness Book of World Records for the loudest performance ever or something like that. But I think I've read that. Yeah. Rocking. And it was pretty amazing to perform with them. That would be good. And then, I mean, it would be amazing. Now, now, how did you end up on Regis with Regis Philbin? Like that's 
I believe there was a union gig. Actually, it was just a, a union contractor was putting together an orchestra for him when he was in town. And I got the call to go beyond that gig. I wasn't a soloist with him. I was just in the orchestra for that one. That's neat stuff. So I guess, you know, um, you know, being in Vegas, I think sounds like it's really, really good for your career. I think that Las Vegas is to the live music scene, kind of what LA is to the session musician scene. There's a lot more session work in Los Angeles, uh, you know, in the recording studio. And I think there's a lot more live music in Las Vegas. So depending on where you want to go with your career, and there's definitely a lot more better paid live music opportunities in Vegas, I think. And we have so many large arenas here and so many shows come through. And now it's kind of in fashion for these artists to have residencies here or mini residencies where Sting will come for two weeks and do a mini residency or, you know, whoever will come and do a little residency. And so it's been a good place for me to get a lot of experience with some major artists before I branched out and, and decided to produce a show of my own. Yeah, it, it seems like that. And, and, you know, I could think of a day when the term residency was a word no one knew, right? That probably in the last 10 years, 12 years is when that kind of became a thing. A time when Vegas was the place musicians went to die, and that's not the case anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, now, how long have you lived in Vegas? I have lived in Vegas for, hmm, let's see, probably around 15 years. Oh, okay. So when you first got there, were there, I mean, was that a thing yet? The, the residencies or not quite yet? When I first came here, it was because I was offered a job with Wayne Newton to play in his show. And so he had obviously a residency here. And I knew of Wayne Newton because of the movie uh, National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation with Chevy Chase. Right. I didn't yeah, know yeah. of Wayne Newton other than that movie, but it was really exciting because he kind of became an icon again from, from that movie. And so that was my first gig. And then it was right around that time when these celebrity engagements, I think, started because right. my second or third year here, Tony Braxton had a residency and then I got the gig as for solo violinist for that residency. And after that, it just seems like more people started coming and more current stars started coming and like even people with hits right now were, were coming. And now you've got pretty much everyone. I mean, there's hardly nobody that doesn't come through Vegas now. That's what I would think. And, and, you know, you got, you have, you know, like, and I, now I guess we can call it an iconic place, the hard rock over there. Right. I mean, it has, there's a, there's a certain street cred. If you have a rock band and they're staying at the hard rock, I don't know why, but you know, it, it it's, if, if we were to think of what we all, and I'm older than you are, but what we thought of Vegas, you couldn't imagine say Aerosmith in Vegas. You think, all right, like you said, you know, that's where Aerosmith goes to die. But now there, there's some panache, if not a lot of panache to being there, right? Yeah, the Hard Rock's actually gone now. The um, Oh, that's what I know. The whole hotel. And now Hard Rock has actually purchased the Mirage, the casino that has the volcano in the front where the Beatles yep. is. So pretty soon the Mirage will not exist and there's going to be a giant guitar on the strip and the Mirage is going to be rebranded as the Hard Rock. So oh. those towns that just doesn't have much history because we knock our history down and, and build new stuff all the time. So. Yeah, I, uh, I haven't been there in years, but I, I, I don't gamble at all. And I love Vegas. You know, it, it's a cool town. Gambled $30 in 15 years here and probably not yeah. anyway. So, yeah, it, but it's just such a cool town. Uh, and you, you drive just a couple of miles in any direction and you've got gorgeous desert all around it. 
Right. That we actually filmed one of our Femmes of Rock music videos, probably 30 minutes from my house. That looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, we did a cover, yeah. the good, the bad and the ugly theme song by Ennio Morricone that was in the Clint Eastwood movie. And so that's on our Femmes of Rock YouTube channel. And yeah, we filmed it like we drove 30 minutes into the desert and it looks like this crazy, you know, Hollywood. I thing. watched it. Yeah, you guys did a good job with that. Whoever filmed it, he Brody got a good. That he's he's a man of many production talents. So he clearly you know, set up this whole studio up here, but he did all the camera work and editing for that video as well. He really replicated the look of like a 1950s, maybe early 60s. It was black and white, wasn't it? Parts of it, I think, were in part okay. color. All right. Now I also saw you did a fun thing. Um, where you, you uh, replicated iconic photos of rock stars and other folks. That was pregnant. my maternity shoot. You know, most people go do a nice, like elegant, flowy dress maternity shoot when they're pregnant. When I, when I was pregnant, yeah. you know, two musicians, what are we going to do for our maternity shoot? So we decided to take my favorite photos of my favorite classic rock stars and replicate them with my big, giant, nine-month pregnant belly. So you can find those on my Instagram page or on my Facebook page. And we did, uh, we did Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Brian Wilson, John Lennon, uh, even Getty Lee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it was just very clever, lots of fun, and a great homage. You know, but what a clever spin, you know, because you got your big gut sticking out. We're going to continue that. And now the baby, now that she's born, we're going to do a third series of photos only with her doing the photos instead of me. So it'll be the original one, me pregnant, and then the baby in the same pose. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, now is it a he or a she? Uh, girl. I have a boy and a girl. The young one is a girl. So how do you know she'll cooperate? Um, because I think she's a ham like her show business parents. So. Oh, so that'll work then. Yeah, because, you know, I, I noticed you were like replicating the exact, you know, body position of, you know, the people in the photograph. It was, it was fun. It was, it was silly and fun. And you guys did a great job. In really replicating the pictures, yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, so, what are you, what are you working on these days? Well, it's been a little bit crazy since since COVID. It kind of changed everything, and the whole reason why I even have a YouTube channel and a TikTok channel where you've seen me do these videos is because of COVID. Because prior to that, I was too busy performing, touring, doing all the business stuff that comes along with that to even consider trying to film videos from home. So, and it's crazy because, you know, I have more of an online presence now than I did prior, even though I was working more prior. So it's, it's, it's right. just a crazy thing. And now maybe coming out of all the COVID stuff, there'll be more of a balance between the two for us. But um, it, it, it's just been, like I said, just the crazy balance of trying to stay relevant in music when you're not able to tour, I think. Right. And you've been doing a great job of it. Like, you know, I, I think one of the sort of lessons we all learn, and every person I've interviewed on this show, and myself included in my day job, you know, I'm a lawyer by day, is that hard work is really the way to go. And I, you know, that's why I like your videos so much. Um, because not only are you doing the hard work, and the hard work gives you that great product in your performance, but when you give us the step-by-step, you know, there's young kids who can watch those and, and really learn and appreciate that, you know, that, that final product isn't coming out there, you know, just because, you know, you're naturally talented, which I'm sure you are, but 
there's a ton of elbow grease that's going into those. Definitely. And I think that, you know, a lot of what's happened in this instant gratification generation is that, you know, you could take something like American Idol and you could be skyrocketed to fame and fortune and a tour immediately with no experience. But then you right. know bands used to do it back in the 60s, like, you know, the Beatles put their time in in Hamburg before they were ever famous. By the time they were famous, they were a really great band. They were tight. They could play and sing perfectly without even hearing each other with screaming thousands of people around them. And I think that today, like that hard work leading up to the recognition is sometimes lost. And so you have people who are inexperienced who now are thrown into these positions of these really high profile performances. And I think it's, it's just a little bit strange. And so I'm kind of happy that I did it the way that I did. You know, I put in a lot of years of experience performing both in lounges and with major artists before I even started having an online career. And the funny thing is the people who watch my videos, they're like, Oh, you know, you gotta be doing something. It's like, I did, I, I did all that stuff. So, you know, yeah. I'm glad that I got the experience first so that you can kind of back it up when the online recognition starts to come. And that's, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, because I'm thinking, you know, you've got young kids and I would imagine this gives you a lot more flexibility to be musically relevant, to keep acting artistically in your professional life, but be in the same building that your kids are in, right? Yeah, and then some days it's great and some days it's really hard. You know, the days when there's like a lot of screaming and crying going on, I don't, I don't get much done, but it's also yeah. not have to be gone. I mean, both Brody and myself, we were here the entire first year of our baby's life. And right. my son, who's six now, uh, that wasn't possible. I mean, I was touring so much still at that time. So it kind of just worked out where every single first, the first word, the first, you know, step, the first crawl, the first everything uh, we were home for, which was really nice. That's really good stuff. And then as you look forward, and the cool thing is you're still young. So even, you know, like I'm on the other side of things right now, but say, you know, 16, 17 years, you're still young. Uh, but but as you go into the next stage, right, um, we're, we're sort of coming out of COVID. You know, I mean, it's still here, but it's, it isn't today what it once was. What do you see in your professional and artistic life in terms of um, any, if you want them, any supplements to your online musical presence? Well, right now, uh, my touring show, Femmes of Rock, we're just starting to get the toe in the water of putting tours together again. And right. because the cost of flights is now double or triple what it was prior to COVID. And so right. a contract offer at the same price that we got in 2019, sometimes we have to turn them down because it costs us, like I just priced out flights to Philadelphia for my band from Las Vegas. It was almost $10,000. I mean, wow to tour with those kind of costs unless you're Beyonce you know I mean so right. it's hard the performances are starting to come back but the transportation costs especially are so high that we're not doing as many shows as we used to so we're doing more corporate events and private events because the clients will cover the cost of travel for those types of things so our performance has shifted a little bit from the public type stuff where people can buy tickets to come see our show to the private events where companies, you know, corporations will hire us and cover our costs to, to do a performance, whether it be in Las Vegas or in another city where they're having their event. That, that's great to have that option. And I think it's probably also reflective of all the work you already did, 
you know, if you were just coming up right now, I, I bet you wouldn't be getting those offers. Sure. It comes from a lot of years of networking and making friends in the industry. And my Bella Electric Strings group has been doing corporate events for, you know, at least a decade. And the, the Femmes of Rock show began touring, I think, in maybe 2015 or 16. So it was nice to have both, to have the corporate option and the public show option. We have a lot of fun when we do public shows because you can interact with the audience. There are people who have purchased a ticket just to come watch you play, whereas right. some corporate events, your, your background music, you're doing, you know, they're having a dinner and you're just there to smile and match the wallpaper. But you know, <laughs> right, right. So it's been good to have both of those options. So I guess my hope is that some of the public performances start to come back, that we're able to afford airfare again to make the shows uh, profitable for us and that we can keep going and that hopefully the stuff that I've done online and that I'm going to continue to do will help build an audience for our touring show once, once we're back at it again. I, I've seen your numbers and I, I think it has to, I don't see how it wouldn't, you know, you get, you get tons of views on your videos. It's, it's really good. So I think you're doing, you're doing a lot right with it. Well, hopefully. And uh, it's funny, the, the videos that hit, you know, a million views and the ones that don't like, I thought for sure that when I covered Crazy Train that that one would hit a million views and it didn't, it didn't really take off that much. But then I did this little snippet, a whole lot of love and that one got, you know, a couple million views. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's very weird the way those things work. You know, you know, uh, on our little channel, our publicist was at the uh, Rock and Roll uh, Museum or the Hall of Fame Museum in New York. He, he simply took his iPhone and took a video of Eddie's guitar. He just walked around it for a few seconds and posted that and it blew up. It's crazy. There's nothing else to it. You yeah. never know what. It's not always the most difficult thing that I learned. It's not always the thing I spent the most time on. It's who knows? I, I have no idea. <laughs> so I just yeah. doing what I love and hopefully it's authentic enough that people will watch some of it. So yeah, you read my mind with the word authentic. I think that's the key. If you if you're authentic, everything else will flow from that. You know. Yeah, and I think that I've kind of changed uh, my image a little bit for these videos from home. I didn't, you know, when you're, when you're producing a show, you have to have photos and you have to have promo videos and it's a whole image that you're doing. Yeah. Like, you know, with real rock kind of stuff on, we have like boots and leather and this and that. And it's a, it's a rock show. And when I went from home, I'm like, you know what? I, when I do these videos, I don't, I don't want to dress like I do for the touring show. I just kind of right. look like I look every day. So I wear my, right it's in my converse and that's kind of what I do and it's it's just been funny to have the the different image I think it was a real positive thing for me to decide to dress like I do every day because you don't know how many comments I get where people are like thank you for not just trying to get views by exposing your skin online you know you know we pay more attention to your playing because of how you're dressed I'm like well okay you know right <laughs> that, that's a good point yeah and, and and you you know and a lot you're right a live show is very different you know, I mean, something simple. Mick Jagger wears bright colors to look younger when he prances around. You know, he, he, wears, he wears the completely inappropriate colors for an 80-year-old man, but, but that's what he should do, you know, yeah. and it works. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. I wear on stage, I'm not going to go take my kid to kindergarten in, so. <laughs> right, right, that's true. That makes sense. Now, as we're, we're sort of, um, I, I took a quick look at the time, and it, as always, it's flying by. Uh, but let me talk a little bit with you about uh, Bella Electric Strings. What is that project? So Bella Electric Strings is, is our corporate uh, product that I offer. 
And it is basically, um, it started as a string quartet of electric string instruments that played a backing tracks, all different kinds of music, pop, top 40, classic rock, country, movie themes, classical crossover, you name it. We have hundreds of songs in the repertoire by now. And you can book the Bella strings as anything from a solo violinist all the way up to like multiple, many electric violinists or acoustic violinists as an orchestra or anything like that. Our most popular options are the string trio and the string quartet, and they all play electric violins with effects pedals to backing tracks. And it's mostly all private corporate events, weddings, um, you know, things like that. So it offers quite a bit of work for a lot of string players. We have over 30 girls who are on our roster who perform with the Bella strings in many different cities throughout the U S and, uh, you know, when we first started it, there weren't a lot of groups doing the electric string quartet thing, just a few. Now there's a whole bunch all over the world. So it's nice to still be working and to hopefully be maintaining the top level of quality amongst the, the competition. Now, uh, this many years later, we're always trying to invent new products, new arrangements, new wardrobe to stay, you know, on the cutting edge of it. That's really cool. Now, how to, so if someone watches this show and they're interested in Bella electric strings, where do they find you? On bellastrings.com, our website, there's a contact form where they can ask for an inquiry. Also, we have presence on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube. Uh, I don't really know how to use Twitter, but we have a Twitter. But (laughs) mostly Instagram and Facebook are the main ways that people will look at our videos and our photos. And then also our website for inquiries about how to book the group. And then, and then um, do they look up Nina D or your full name that I did not try to pronounce Sometimes on, on our show? Look up Nina D Violin, you'll find me. If you look up Nina D Gregorio, my full Italian last name, you'll find me that way. Right. Too. Uh, I'm not hard to find because there's not very many electric violinists with the name Nina. So, you know, right. That's how I looked you up. It's it me. Was very easy. That is your email address. <laughs> but um, yeah. But that was great. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Guitar Tells. You know, we were, Scott Engel and I, we're so excited to get you on. Uh, We've been watching your videos for a little while now. So we appreciate that you gave us your time for this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm glad that I'm now uh, uh, worthy of being on guitar guitar, uh, videos and blogs. (laughs) (laughs) You you absolutely are. And, and, you know, I, I think I saw in one of your videos, there were some six string guitars behind you. So you're covered. Oh, there's, yeah, there's, there's a few back here. Uh, the, the Strat is mine. The Van Halen there you go. is Brody's back there. So we, we all cover multiple instruments in this household. That's what I would have thought. And look, we've had actors on who once played guitar. <laughs> so it all works. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm really bad at stopping the recording, so I'm just going to kind of talk while I do that. Okay. Here.